is funny, but not funny haha. how millions of people from the White House chief resident on down have recently and suddenly discovered the border, the boundary land of Mexico and the United States, when it's been there all along, before countries, before maps, as a singular place with a character of its own. The border planet is what Luis Alberto Urea has called it. The master of both fiction and nonfiction was born in Tijuana, He's a U.S. citizen by virtue of his New York City mother and a Mexican courtesy of his Basque Mexican father, whose lineage dates to the conquest, the 16th century one. If the border had its own flag, he'd be wearing the T-shirt. The very notion of a border is a standout character in Urea's acclaimed nonfiction and fiction, from The Devil's Highway to his new novel, The House of Broken Angels. The man who spent much of his life making the border make sense to himself now tries to help the rest of us do the same. What do people get wrong about what the border actually is? I say this a lot, but, you know, the myth that's perpetuated constantly is this seething pit of terror, danger hatred, invasion, suspicion. They need a barrier. They need a wall. If you don't have it, it's going to be nothing but hard work and grueling problems. And by the way, and death. And death. A lot of death. But for people like us, my family and everyone I've ever known, it's also an imaginary line between two imaginary regions where there's fraternity, interaction, ancient friendship, or at least neighborliness. Immigration, whatever that is, certainly for Mexico, wasn't a concern. It really wasn't until the 20th century. So it's a complicated place. And believe me, I'm not Pollyanna. I've had a lot of horrible border things happening, including the death of my dad, including one of my nephews being burned to death by narcos. I know. I know all the bad stuff. But there's also the other side. And, you know, when I was a little boy coming out of Tijuana, everybody I ever loved or respected or looked up to or even feared, they were all in Mexico. I joke with people that if you move from TJ to the barrio, you're moving into diet Mexico, you know, it's like Mexico life. <laughs> and I didn't find out this hideous separation business until later when we moved up to a nice little working-class suburb in, in northern San Diego. Unfortunately, lately, the first thing that comes to my mind is narcos and terror and all that stuff. And it's on the upswing in Tijuana, no question. But when I get my wits about me and think, no, wait a minute, it's about grandma's house. You know, it's about fresh tortillas. It's about all of my relatives. It's about Spanish, which I love. It's about joy. It's about all these other things as well. And that wins out for me. The border area, for much of its length, has its own sense, its own ecology, its own biology. It's its own world. It's a very complex and beautiful natural world. We've brought the ugliness to it. And I don't just mean we Americans. We both. We humans. But if you were to see the Rio Grande for what it really was, or El Rio Bravo, as Mexicans call it, it's one of the great Western rivers. For much of its path, it's a great Western American river full of beavers, believe it or not. It's got deer, and it's got eagles, and it's, it's gorgeous. The Sonoran Desert, it's a very complex.
political ecosystem. And culturally, it's interesting because for a very long time, I think Mexico itself rejected the borderlands. And I think the United States sort of rejected the borderlands. So we kind of made a very long, snake-like nation of our own, you know, from coast to coast. Border nation. Mexico City, I think, was uncomfortable with the border because, you know, that famous old saying, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. And so proximity to the U.S., for some reason, I think, made people deeper in the heart of Mexico look down on the border dwellers like they weren't really Mexican. We all know what a lot of Americans think about the border. So it sort of developed its own kind of culture. And what's happening now, which is very interesting to me, particularly in my hometown of Tijuana, is a kind of, I want to call it a renaissance of art, but I don't know that there was ever a sans for there to be a renaissance, you know. You can make a new art of a new land there. And it was a burst of new literature embracing, I think, that polyglot kind of feeling. And a burst of certainly graphic arts and painting and rock music and dance music. Suddenly, Tijuana had art galleries everywhere. And then all of a sudden, oh no, fancy coffee shops and wine bars and then microbreweries. And that's so amazing for me to watch and so exciting. And I think the response to the border wall is very interesting because, of course, on the Mexican side, it became a kind of open-air art gallery. On the U.S. side, it looks like East Berlin. On the Mexican side, it's covered with paintings and sculptures and color, which if you take the East Berlin model a few steps further, you think, hmm, who's on the free side and who's on the Soviet side? The side with the trucks and the dogs and the helicopters and the barbed wire or the side where the party is? Hmm, that's disturbing. <laughs> think about it. I think, I think the border wall is a prison wall and it's, it's being built to keep our brains trapped. I don't think it has anything to do with Mexicans at all. You grew up there and near there. When did Tijuana itself change? What were the forces that changed Tijuana in, what was it, the 70s, the 80s? I think Tijuana is an interesting being. You know, it's a being unto itself. I think the waves of migration or immigration, certainly had a, a hand in transforming the city. It was a smallish town, and then suddenly had a million people in it. Boom. People were frantic at different times when economic crisis hit Mexico. For example, when the peso dropped, you know, from 25, 12, or 25 to a dollar to 1,200 to a dollar. People came north, and a lot of them were indigenous people. A lot of them were really poor people. And they were attracted by, not necessarily the border either, attracted by proximity to the border, the relationships between our government and the Mexican government. But certainly, unquestionably, the world of cartels had a big effect as well. The proximity to Southern California is kind of mind-boggling. If you go out to Otay Mesa, the dedicated truck route, it's incredibly busy. And there's a nonstop river of long-haul trucks coming up out of Mexico and Central America and going back in. And who knows what's in those trucks? The image that you're hearing about the five guys on donkeys bringing 200,000 pounds of cocaine in, it's not possible. They're passing through those 
dedicated truck route, and they're very sophisticated. I wish Octavio Paz were still here and could write The Labyrinth of Solitude, Volume 2, and see what he thought about it. It's pretty scary to me and tragic. People always ask me, well, they call me Lewis. You know, Excuse me, Lewis, what can we do to fix this drug problem? I say, well, <laughs> stop taking drugs, man. You know, the drug problem is not a hideous Mexican invasion of the United States. It's Americans needing to be high. I think it started changing a little bit during those years in the 70s into the very early 80s for me. One of my uncles was the chief of motorcycle police. I was sitting in a shoeshine booth getting a shoeshine in Tijuana, and this uniformed arm came around the corner and grabbed me by the wrist and muttered a curse. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die right now. And it was my uncle. This was Tijuana cop humor. And he pulled me out and he said, let's go on patrol. And he took me on patrol. And it blew my mind because I realized I had seen, you know, I'd seen people at the worst possible life they could lead to go with my uncle and see what he sees every day and to talk to him at length about what they were seeing. And that's when I realized something strange was going on. And I won't say he was a, you know, he wasn't a cuddly, sweet man in any way, but he was really disturbed. They had a Salvadoran man who had come seeking asylum. Sounds familiar, right? And he was caught by some Mexican nationalists, and they cut out his tongue. And my uncle was trying to deal with how he felt about this, and he was insane with rage that these guys would do this to an immigrant. And so then now, fast forward to now, when the, the caravans came, the nationalists, the Tijuana Trumpies, <laughs> had hats made that said, make Tijuana great again. And when I first saw them, I had I burst out laughing because I thought, that's like a Saturday Night Live skit, right? They don't want Hondurans, Guatemalans, Salvadorans coming to their town. They're embarrassed by the poor. Part of what's so complex about all this is that there's a huge population of deported U.S. veterans living in Mexico. People who were undocumented, who served our country, went to war, ended up deported. They can never come home until they die, and then they can be brought home and buried with full honors. But they can't come back if they're alive. Really weird. So when the Make Tijuana Great Again warriors attacked these people who were honestly in a little soccer stadium, there were 1,800 people, I believe, with one toilet outside in a soccer stadium. Part of the group that protected them were the deported veterans. They went and stood and with their bodies protected these helpless people. That's pretty complicated if you think about it. It's got so many levels of political amazement to me. I can't even parse it. But that kind of stuff goes on, and it's quite rich. Well, what keeps your faith in a place that's been so caricatured and demonized? <laughs> I don't know. I have given up on politics. And what happens is I get zillions of young Latino kids coming to see me. And part of my job is to give them a little hope. And so one of the things you can tell people is to learn history. Look up Ben Franklin talking about German immigrants. <laughs> Oh, it'll sound so familiar. <laughs> they don't speak our language. They don't have our religion. They're coming to get 
free jobs. They're coming to take an education and the benefits. They have diseases. Look at what, how we greeted Italian people. Look how we greeted Jewish people. Look how we greeted Germans. Look how we greeted Irish. Because kids like to laugh. You want to cheer them up a little bit. So I go to the absurdities. I say, when you get to be my age, you're going to have a president who's really pissed off at Norwegian. And they're going to forget all about you. <laughs> and they're going to build a wall on the East Coast to stop those Vikings from coming. <laughs> you just stick to your guns and get your education and be good people. And don't be ashamed because they're ashamed and they're afraid and they're embarrassed. The border itself, that Mexican border, is a metaphor for all the separations between us as human beings. The border is everywhere. I mean, there are so many barriers and borders between us. People are separated from each other, and I think we miss each other. But I think we've made it so toxic, it's almost impossible to talk to each other. Not only just as world citizens, but just as Americans. Where does House of Broken Angels fit in your evolved thinking? Well, it's a post-immigration book. It's about a family who's been in the United States. Well, it's based on my family. So some of my cousins are Yaquis and some of my cousins are Apaches. So let's say they've been here a really long time. And the Mexican family has been here a really long time. And the white part of the family has been here not that long. So just in terms of the family in the novel, so they've been here, let's say, 70 years, citizens, voting, paying taxes. Yet they find themselves sometimes being told to go back to Mexico or build a wall or your bad hombres, rapists, murderers. And that's a shock to them, as it has been to my own family. So I thought that was an interesting story. What do you make of this new, this new genre of border writing? Don't even get me started, man. Everybody's writing this border stuff right now. And uh, I call it my day at the zoo. Oh, wait, there's a child detention center. I'm going to go walk around it a few times and then write a blistering book about it. I don't want to write about people suffering to get rich or famous. I committed a long time ago, and it sounds so precious, but it's true, that I wanted to bear witness. I wanted to do a literature witness. So I don't want to write anything unless I feel it. It tries to talk about real things, even if I don't like them. Like the Devil's Highway, you know, I didn't want to be Mr. U.S. Border Patrol champion, but then I thought, wait a minute, I'm really prejudiced. I'm going to write a work of witness, but refuse to witness the Border Patrol agents? That's really creepy. You have to watch yourself. Talk about borders. You have to be your own border guard. <laughs> watch out and make sure you're not violating the rules of your own belief. Thanks. Thank you so much. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. The music is Tijuana Makes Me Happy by Nortec Collective on Nacional Records and Hijo de Tijuana by Los Tigres del Norte from Universal Music Group. The news clip is from Fox 10 News in Phoenix. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. Por eso me vengas tan.